See, we all know tonight we're living through momentous days as a nation, morally, spiritually, socially, economically, from the politicians in the corridors of power down to the vast majority of the population who live in these islands. We no longer, we who once were known as the land of the book, we no longer retain God in our thinking and in our living. We have decided as a nation not just to ignore God or to reject God, but to put God to death in our minds. That's where we're at. We've decided not just to ignore him or reject him. We don't want to even think about him. And we are a nation trampling underfoot his word as we embrace in an ever-increasing manner a materialistic, hedonistic, secular society. The fastest-growing secular country in Europe. Who would have ever thought it? Scotland. We've dismissed God as an irrelevance. In so many places and at so many levels, the church is being squeezed, you know that, at home and abroad. And it would be very easy to be pessimistic. Very easy indeed. But I want you to see, I hope those of us who were here this morning have at least had a glimpse of it. We want to see from the book of the Revelation that God is actually in control of what appears to be chaos to us. No matter what, when or where, and no matter what he permits, which might puzzle us at times, as it did Habakkuk the prophet in the Old Testament, God is working out his plans and his purposes. And everything is moving to the point when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I think in the words of the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Romans, it sums it up in a sentence, from him... And through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Revelation chapter 5. He's just had a glimpse of the throne, John. He's just heard a message from the throne. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. He's just described a scene around the throne. God being worshipped as the creator. Verse 1 of chapter 5. Then... I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God 
sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp, golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you've made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honour and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honour and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. And this is God's word. When you read the book of the Revelation, let me just remind all of us at the very commencement tonight, when you read the book of the Revelation, you must always keep in mind that you are reading apocalyptic literature. This genre of literature, this kind of literature, was unheard of before the 6th century BC, and it really came into its own in the two centuries before and after Christ. It's not the same as reading history, or law, or wisdom literature. It's a different kind of literature altogether. It's rich in symbolism. For example, horns usually means kings, people in authority. Numbers are symbolic. Seven, as I said this morning, is the number of perfection or completeness. So seven horns probably refers to a perfection of kingly rule. And we could go on. The numbers in apocalyptic literature are different from the numbers you read about in the historical narratives of the four Gospels. For example, when you read in John's Gospel that the fishermen caught 153 fish, they must have counted them. When you read they caught 153 fish, they caught 153 fish. There's nothing symbolic about the number 153, although I can tell you that some people have conjured up some rather weird and wonderful interpretations. People who are into numerology. Very interesting. Numbers in apocalyptic literature are symbolic. You can also make sure metaphors in apocalyptic literature. It's not uncommon to read of wings with eyes. Wings normally have feathers. I think. They normally have feathers, but in apocalyptic literature, they sometimes have eyes. In chapter 4, verse 8, we read this morning, each of the four living creatures, we're told, had six wings with eyes all around them and even under the wings. Strange, but it's symbolic. 
because it's apocalyptic. Now, these are creatures who miss nothing. That's the message. They're, they're ready to do the will of him who sits on the throne. The fact that it's apocalyptic makes it all that more difficult, the book of the Revelation, to understand, and therefore all the more foolish to be dogmatic, particularly when we get down to secondary issues, details. Karl Barth, his name was mentioned today at the dinner table, Karl Barth, hailed by some as the greatest theologian of the 20th century, I wouldn't agree with that, but that's neither here nor there, he said he didn't know what to do with the book of the Revelation. One of the greatest theologians of the last century. He didn't know what to do with the book of the Revelation. Now, don't condemn him. Spurgeon, the greatest preacher of the 19th century, he professed profound ignorance of the meaning of the book. The great Spurgeon. He said only fools and madmen are positive in their interpretation. John Calvin. John Calvin was without doubt the greatest writer of commentaries in the 16th century. He wrote commentaries on most of the books of the Bible, but he didn't write a commentary in the book of the Revelation. The intellectual, theological genius from Geneva... He didn't even attempt to write a commentary in the book of Revelation. Now, I have to be honest. When I first read these things, I began to wonder, what on earth am I doing trying to preach from this amazing book if these great men view it in that light? But then I have to tell you that I take great comfort from the fact that in the opening prologue to the book of the Revelation, in chapter 1, verse 3, this is what it says. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy. Blessed are those who hear it. And take to heart what is written in it. Because the time is near. Can I ask you a question? When did, have you read the book of the Revelation recently? This year? Within the last five years? There's a blessing. Is there any other book where it specifically says there's a blessing for just reading it? A blessing for those who hear it? A blessing for those who take heart to what's written in it. I believe the devil doesn't want the people of God to read the book of the Revelation. I was even more encouraged by the comments of Derek Thomas. Derek Thomas, when I was a student in Belfast, he was the minister of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Belfast. He said this, I have long since come to the conclusion that God does not intend his final word to the church to be intimidating. Revelation is a book for children. Well, well. And there is more to that last sentence than meets the eye, he says, for just as children relate to pictures better than to words, so Revelation is a picture book designed to show us more than it is for to relate to it. So Revelation is first and foremost a book of pictures, albeit word pictures. And the key verb is not to hear or to say. The key verb is to see. In chapter 4, John was given a glimpse of the throne. We've noticed that. The throne is occupied. He hears a powerful message from the throne with regards to the character of God. God is holy. God is almighty. God is the one who was and is and is to come. He's everlasting. And then he described that wonderful scene of worship around the throne of God as the creator. And we come tonight to the text of chapter 5 with a childlike trust, knowing that it must be taken together with chapter 4, the 
They're both, both the chapters, part of the one vision. Chapter 4 is to chapter 5 what a setting is to a drama. The drama of chapter 5 can only be understood against the setting of the scene in chapter 4. So Revelation 4 and 5 are two parts of one single magnificent vision of the glory of God. Now as a student, and I'm nothing more than that, as a student I want to stick to the main things and the plain things, as I said this morning, and I want to leave the details to the scholars. So what can we say about chapter 5? I trained in the faith mission in Edinburgh. That means I speak with three points. Okay. I want you to look with me first of all. And again, remember, we're just using big brush strokes. We're not getting into details. I want us to look at the scroll and the seals. The chapter opens with John saying, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. Please note, it's a scroll. It's not a book. With a scroll, there is as much space to write on the outside as there is on the inside. Not so with a book. Scrolls in the ancient world were made from the papyrus plant. It could peel off in strips like sheets, and the sheets could all then be glued together to make up a scroll that could be over 30 feet in length. This scroll that John sees is written on both sides, and that's probably meant, I think, to convey to us the fact that this scroll is full. It, it's complete. There's no space left over for anything else to be added, and nothing that's in it needs to be taken out. It's sealed with seven seals. Remember the number seven? In other words, the scroll is complete, and it's been perfectly sealed. That's exactly the way someone of great importance long ago sealed what they had written down on the inside of a scroll in terms of their last will and testament. That's how they did it. The Roman Emperor Vespasian, we are told, did exactly that. He had his will written down on the inside of the scroll and then he had it sealed on the outside once the scroll was covered. Now the significance of all of this is that people in the ancient world would have known that what was in a person's will was only made probate, was only put into practice when the seals were slit and broken. The only difference with this scroll is that it's writing on both the inside and the outside and it's sealed with seven seals. It's perfectly sealed. Now there are a couple of things I want you to notice here. The picture to be seen here. There's no doubt since this scroll is in the right hand of him who sits on the throne... Remember where it is? It contains the authoritative, complete, and perfect will of Almighty God. The one we saw in chapter 4. The scroll contains all of his purposes for blessing and for judgment. It contains the secrets of the world's affairs at both a personal and a global level. It contains the history of the human race. No one knows what's written on both the inside and the outside except the one who wrote the script. It's top secret. It's been sealed with seven seals. It's perfectly sealed. The scroll contains God's plan, God's purpose for your life, for my life, for our world, 
This scroll contains the title deeds of the world. It's written down not just because God knows what's going to happen, but because God plans what's going to happen. And not just to the peoples of the planet, but with regards to his people in particular. John sees something else. Over and above, seeing the scroll sealed with seven seals, perfectly sealed in the right hand of him who sits on the throne, he looks again and he hears a strong, mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? This mighty angel calling out, Challenging the whole universe. Anybody who will listen. He's asking if there is anybody anywhere out there who has the credentials needed that would make them worthy to break the seals and open the scroll. Now, I can tell you that in reading the life and times of George Whitfield, two volumes, a twin volume by Arnold Dallimore, Whitfield, of course, the great evangelist in the 18th century, in reading the life and times of Whitfield, it was recorded that he could speak to crowds of up to 30,000 people at one time. Did you know that? 30,000 people. And they could hear him. I find that remarkable, amazing. He had no loudspeaking equipment, no amplification. He may have been in a valley speaking downwind and he may have been speaking from under a sounding box and there was certainly no traffic noise. But what a voice Whitfield must have had. But that pales into insignificance compared to this. This angel, this mighty angel, is calling out, challenging anybody in the universe, asking for someone to step forward and do the needful. Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? What a voice this angel must have had. That's the picture, isn't it? You tell me on the way out if you think I've got it wrong. That's the picture that John is painting painting here, brought before us in this passage. Surely a child can understand that. The picture that is to be seen. But the other thing we need to take note is this. There's a problem to be solved. We're told that no one in heaven or in earth or under the earth could open this scroll. Even look inside it. And as the drama unfolds, it brings tears to John's eyes. John the Apostle. Remember he's on the Isle of Patmos? But he's having this vision. As the drama unfolds, it brings tears to John's eyes. John wept, we're told, and he wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. He knew what was at stake here. This word for wept is a strong word in the Greek. It really means he wailed. He wailed. And it's understandable that John felt the way he felt about this. When you look at this against the background of what we saw in chapter 4. Chapter 4, John's far removed from God by all that is happening around the throne of God. He's there. He's been asked to go up and have a peep in. He's there. But he's far removed by all that's happening around the throne. In many respects, the scene he sees and he records for us here. The scene is accompanied by the sounds he hears. It's terrifying. 
the dazzling splendor of the glory of God. Here's a human being, a finite fallen human being like you and me. He's getting a glimpse of all this. Dazzling splendor of the glory of God. Living creatures in the form of the cherubim. 24 elders representing the servants of God of all the ages. The peals of thunder, the flashes of lightning, the rainbow like an emerald, the sea of glass, amid all the other things that were going on. This man must have been shaking in his shoes, trembling. Who would dare to go near the throne? Who would dare to go near the throne and take the scroll from the right hand? Of the one who's seated on the throne. And break open the seals. Who? John tells us no one was found. Who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. No angelic being. No human being. No created being of any kind. No one anywhere above the earth, on the earth, under the earth. John isn't weeping because his curiosity isn't being satisfied. It's much more serious than that. If God's will, and that's what this is all about, don't forget that. If God's will is ever to be done, worked out to perfection, then these seals must be broken. And the scroll must be opened. The scroll contains God's plans for history. That's what we are meant to take from this. That's what we are meant to see in this. And the hypothesis is that if no one is found, then God's purposes for blessing and judgment are going to collapse. His story, history, will need to be rewritten. There will be no hope for anybody. There will be no answer to injustice. The mystery of life will remain forever unsolved. Everything will be meaningless. If nothing happens, we would all be as well to go and commit suicide or at best to eat, drink and be merry and tomorrow we die. There's no point to life. There's no plan. There's no purpose. Only God can bring hope. Only God can give meaning. Only God can bring purpose and significance to the world. With God there's a beginning, isn't there? Yes, and there is an end to these things. There is creation, yes, and there will be consummation. God has an eternal plan and purpose, but it will not be worked out unless there is someone found who's worthy to break these seals and open this scroll. And there's no one in heaven or in earth or under the earth, at least so it seems, who can open the scroll or even look inside. That's the problem. That is the problem. It all appears to be impossible. Ah, but wait a minute. Something else is happening here. This is not the end of the story. This is not the end of the vision that John is seeing. Yes, think of the scroll and the seals. When you go home, just take these three headings and think them through for yourself. Be like the Bereans and go through the scriptures and see whether these things are so. Scroll and seals, what does that mean? Study it. Look at it. Think about it. Meditate on it. But don't stop there. Because the next heading is this. The lion and the lamb. The pivotal verse in this chapter of unfolding drama is in the fifth verse. Everything changes from verse 5 onwards. We read these words. Then one of the elders said to me, John, don't weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He's able to open the scroll and its seven seals. 
Now, Richard Buse, an Anglican, he writes, In all of our human story and throughout the courts of heaven, precisely one figure emerges with sufficient qualifications to unravel the mystery and to open the scroll and to claim the title deeds of the world. The big question is, who is he? And the answer comes in two statements. He's a lion. He has to be a figure of immense strength and power to do what he's going to do. He is described as the lion of the tribe of Judah. And it says he has triumphed. It's a person, but he's described as a lion. He's lion-like. It's not literally a lion like Aslan in C.S. Lewis's Narnia series. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. And the word in the Greek, he has triumphed. It literally means triumphed. Has the lion of the tribe of Judah. Now, religious gobbledygook to a whole lot of people. I hope it's not to you. This is of course a reference to the messianic king way back in Genesis chapter 49. He's the one. He's the only one who's able. There's no object to the sentence here. It simply tells us he has triumphed. But he's triumphed over what? What is he triumphed over? The answer to that question is that this lion, this lion of the tribe of Judah, has triumphed over everything. That is the effect of having no object in the sentence. Look at the sentence. There's no object in the sentence. He has won the greatest victory of all. The ultimate triumph is his. And the tense speaks of an action in the past that's complete forever. The triumph is complete. The battle is won by this one described as the line of the tribe of Judah. Now if you want to trace that thought of the line of the tribe of Judah, you have to go back to the time when Jacob at the end of his life, he's on his deathbed, remember? He gathers all his sons around him before he says goodbye to this world. And he, he gives them his blessing in Genesis chapter 49. It's maybe a chapter you haven't read for a time, but go back and read it. He speaks to them one by one. He, Reuben comes and he speaks to Reuben and he tells Reuben this, that, and the other. Then he, he, he speaks to Simeon and he, he speaks to Levi and he speaks to Issachar and he speaks to all his sons. When Judah comes, what does he say to Judah? You are a lion's cub. Oh, Judah. You return from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down like a lioness. Who dares to rouse him? The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he comes to whom it belongs and the obedience of the nations is his. Or if you've got an authorized King James Version, for unto him shall the gathering of the people be. When I wasn't a Christian, I remember the first visit I made to Wishel Baptist Church. I was invited to go. We're walking up, just off the road, we're walking up towards the front door of the church. And I see these words etched out in stone above the front door of the church. Unto him shall the gathering of the people be. I thought, what on earth is that? 
It's this. You trace that thought through the pages of the Old Testament and you will find you eventually arrive at the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, who's not only the saviour of the world, whose kingdom is not only an everlasting kingdom, but who's going to be the judge of all the earth. See, when John turns round, as it were, to see this lion in this vision, this lion of the tribe of Judah, what does he see? He sees a lamb. This is apocalyptic literature. Listen to what it says in verse 6. I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. He's got seven horns, seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He came and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Here is one of those mixed metaphors in apocalyptic literature again. The lion is a lamb. Ah yes, and he's a strange lamb at that. Seven horns, seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Now remember, these horns are symbols of perfect and complete power and authority, kingly authority. All authority in heaven and on earth resides in this person. Those eyes that are the seven spirits of God, they symbolize perfect all-seeing omniscience and omnipotence. Only this lion who is a lamb can execute what is in the scroll in the right hand of him who sits on the throne. Only he knows what is written there. Only he is willing and only he is able to take the scroll, open the seals. Human nations look for symbols of authority, don't they? Russia is the bear. America is the eagle. But the kingdom of heaven has as its symbol a lamb. Would you believe it? A slain lamb. This lion of the tribe of Judah, who is a lamb, a slain lamb, is of course a reference to the Lord Jesus. And he's standing here in the center of the throne. Now listen very carefully. He didn't come in from the outside. This is the one who is the eternal son of the eternal God. This is the one who was always on the inside but who stepped outside just for a wee while, just for a short time, when he stooped down to be born in Bethlehem. And he went into the far country looking. Looking for who? You and me. People who are lost. This is the one who became flesh. And lived among us in order to become sin for us when he took our place and took our punishment on the cross. This is the one who was led like a lamb to the slaughter outside the gates of the city of Jerusalem. And whose death, brothers and sisters, friends, is the hinge of history. If he hadn't come. You ever think about this? If he hadn't come, if he hadn't died the death he died... There would not be a single soul saved. There would be no Hamilton Baptist Church. There would be no Wishaw Baptist Church. No Airdrie Baptist Church. No Musselboro Baptist Church. No church. 
No gift of the Holy Spirit. No hope for the future. No meaning to life. No ultimate justice. No ultimate righting of wrongs. No resurrection of the body. No new heavens. No new earth. But as we turn to this dramatic scene, we're reminded not only of the fact that this Lamb of God was slain for us, he's returned from the outside. He was only away for, what, 33 years? He's returned from the outside and he's back inside again. Gary Benfold puts it like this. Heaven had been waiting an eternity for this moment. It was through his death on the cross as the Lamb of God that he triumphed over all his foes, over all our foes. He takes his place at the center of the throne. He reaches out to the Father. He takes the scroll from his hand. It's as the once crucified Son of God that the conquering Lamb emerges as the only one uniquely qualified to unlock the eternal secrets, to give you and me eternal life, to give us real significance and hope to our earthly existence. John the Apostle was told in chapter 4 to come up and see the throne and he would be shown what must take place. This is something in God's economy that had to take place. The divine must. It was never in doubt from God's perspective. Is he not spoken of in the Bible as the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world? In the councils of eternity. This was all there worked out. Matthew Henry once remarked, what is transacted on earth is first designed and sealed in heaven. He emerges. Can you see him coming? Into the center of the throne. From his incarnation. From his crucifixion. From his resurrection and now his ascension. He's the only uniquely qualified mediator between God and men. And he appears as the only one who can reconcile us to God. Against whom we have all sinned. What psalm in the whole of the Psalter would be a good psalm to sing here? Psalm 24. Remember what it says? Lift up your heads, O you gates. Lift up your heads. Why? That the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? Who is he? The Lord strong and mighty in battle. The Lord almighty. He is the King of glory. No anticlimax in heaven. This is the moment heaven has been waiting for. It has at long last arrived. And all heaven erupts to become a scene of worshipping the one who is worthy. The one who is not only the keys of death and hell, but the one who has all the keys. The one who himself is the key. Now brothers and sisters, don't get bogged down and become mesmerized by the details. A glimpse of the throne. Have you caught a glimpse? One seated on the throne. This is God the Father. A message from the throne. What's it saying? What's God like? He's holy. He's omnipotent. He's eternal. He's everlasting. The one who was and is and is to come. Yeah, but continue. What's this? Scroll in the right hand of the one in the throne. Sealed with seven seals. Who can open it? Nobody. Ah, who's this? This is the line of the tribe of Judah. He's just come back. But look at him. He's like a lamb as it had been slain. What happened when this takes place? That's the final point. 
the choir and the chorus. All heaven bursts into worship. The moment the Lord, this lion who is this lamb, looking as if it had been slain, takes the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. John described the scene. This is how he puts it. The four living creatures, the 24 elders, they fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Then I heard every creature in heaven. Think of this now. Every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honour and glory and power forever and forever. The four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Now, I haven't got time to open up all this. There's so much here. Let me pick out just a few things just in the passing as we bring it to a close. Instead of John weeping, all heaven is now rejoicing. Note that. And there's plenty to sing about. And the harp, I'm told, in the ancient world was an instrument of joy. It was the kind of instrument that got the feet tapping. They're singing a new song. Heaven is a place where the prayers of the saints are effective. And now that we know there's a mediator between God and men, we're meant to see the ministry of prayer as being vital and instrumental in the bringing of God's eternal purposes to pass. They rise like a sweet-smelling incense to God. They're the means whereby His will is done on earth as it is in heaven. And the words, you are worthy? That's technical language. Used in the days of the Roman Empire. The people said of Caesar, didn't they? You are worthy, O Caesar. But the Christians, they were taught to say of Christ, he is worthy. And many of them paid the ultimate price for doing so. The Caesars were only men. Some of them were mad men. Some of them were bad men. But here is the only one who is the God man, truly worthy, receiving the worship he is due. Now, two things just as I finish. The theme of the chorus. What are they singing? This song of praise is a song to Christ as the one who is worthy. The one who is worth everything. The one who is to be what we've been singing about it already. The one who is to be worshipped. If ever there was a portion of scripture that proved the deity of Christ, it's this portion of scripture. What is said of God the Father in chapter 4 of God as the creator is said of Christ in chapter 5 as the Redeemer. Don Carson, interestingly, he points out from here to the end of the book of the Revelation, it's all about God and the Lamb. As one. But look at the theme. You were slain, and with your blood you've purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You've made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. The theme is all about his life poured out in his sacrificial death. The theme is one of redemption. And there are many people who are ministers in churches tonight and sitting in pews tonight who hate this message. But I want to tell you that is the message in heaven. It's a message, to put it in the words of a wee hymn I learned when I went to a brethren Sunday school in York Hill. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. That's what they're singing about. And he has ransomed, he has redeemed a great multitude that no man can number. They're standing before him there. The size of the choir, we read in verse 8 of the four living creatures, the cherubim, 
They're joined by the 24 elders who symbolize the servants of God of all the ages. And then in verse 11, John hears the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. It seems all heaven is bursting into song to praise this King of glory. But that isn't all. There's still more to come. Have you ever watched The Last Night of the Proms? You know, he's really going at it. He's conducting the, the orchestra. Wonderful to see a, a conductor, all these different orchestra people in the orchestra, he's got them all. Then he turns round to the audience and he starts to conduct them. It's that kind of thing here. It's something like that. I have every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honour and glory and power forever and ever. All of creation joining in. The four living creatures said Amen. The elders fell down and they worshipped. This is the big picture. Do you know, I travel up and down the country preaching all over the place. Christians find it difficult to get on with each other. Isn't that amazing? It's true. They fall out, they divide over secondary issues. We need to focus on the primary issue. What's the primary issue? The primary issue is the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we keep our eyes on him, we'll no fall out with each other. One day in your courts, said the psalmist, is better than a thousand anywhere else. I hope we know even just a little of what that means today. Father, we thank you for the Bible. We thank you for this unveiling of something that is absolutely mind-blowing. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for who he is. We thank you for what he's done. We thank you that all heaven worships him. And one day, we will all be with your people if we know him as our very own Savior. Be with us as we close this gathering, as we sing this hymn. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.